The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, for those of you who have been uh, devoted listeners, <laughs> I hope, I hope, um, you know that a lot of times I talk about really heavy subjects um, that I think need to be, we all need to explore, like terrorism and so on, uh, violent media, whatever. Um, but it's really good, especially, especially with all the heavy things that are going on in the world today, to um, also have some fun. And I promise you that today's show is going to be a lot of fun. Um, the topic for today is Houdini, Sherlock Holmes, and the Hereafter. Yes, it's the Hereafter, but it's still going to be fun. Um, this was brought about, the idea for doing this show was brought about by my attending the opening performance of a play that is at the Malibu Playhouse currently um, called Flim Flam, Houdini and the Hereafter. And um, it, it, it's really fabulous. And uh, in the last segment, I'll be telling you all how you can get tickets and why you'll, you'll know why you should get tickets when you hear my guests and hear how interesting the topic is. Um, and, of course, the play itself is even more exciting because there's magic, actual magic in it, too, magic tricks. But today we have two um, men who who I think are the world's experts on Houdini, and I guess Sherlock Holmes as well, um, because they have been, this has been their passion, um, both the playwright, Gene Franklin Smith, writing the play, and Rick D. Wasserman, starring as Harry Houdini, and um, preparing um, tremendously to play this man realistically. So, welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, I was saying before we started that um, I never even knew, and I think a lot of people never knew, um, that there was, that Harry Houdini and um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes series, um, ever met. So I was originally thinking that this was just sort of a premise that what if these two men met and what would happen. And then, you know, of course, um, as you describe, um, it, is, it was real. It really did happen. And, um, you know, and it's interesting. They both came from, from Europe, Harry Houdini from Hungary and, and um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle from uh, Great Britain. And, and they met in America, presumably. Well, you'll tell us all about it. You're the experts, not me. But I just thought it was a fascinating, fascinating combination, and especially also this whole idea of spiritualism in the early 20th century, which really, um, you know, puts, which is the, is the cement that glues the two of them together um, in, in two opposing ways. Um, and it, it's just a really fascinating story and a true story, which makes it more fascinating. So I will let you uh, tell us all about it. And I'd like to start with Jean, because 
I'd like to know how you, where you got the idea, you know, obviously this whole, these, these two men and the spiritualism and all of that um, really uh, um, made you feel impassioned enough to spend a long time writing this play. So where did that start from? Oh, wow. Uh, you know, it started, I mean, actually, when I was a kid, I, um, I was crazy for all the Houdini stuff. I had seen the um, Tony Curtis, Janet Lee movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think which a lot of people had, which is about 95% fiction. So, um, but that's what I, you know, kind of grew up believing what Houdini was uh, and, you know, how he lived his life. And then about oh, 2008, I think, I um, read a review of a pretty recent book that had uh, just come out called The Secret Life of Houdini, um, The Making of... Uh, America's First Superhero. And what's fascinating about the book is that the two authors um, did extraordinary research. In fact, they actually published two uh, appendixes that um, you can purchase with all the backup material for, hmm. uh, for the main book. Hmm. And one of the sections in it dealt with Houdini's um, debunking spiritualism, which really consumed him for most of his life, but certainly in the last uh, few years of his life when his body was really worn down and, um, you know, it was really kind of killing him physically to do all of his illusions and escapes. So he turned his attention on debunking psychic mediums. So that started my looking into it. And part of the story um, that really appealed to me was um, during, in, in July of 1922, which we actually depict, Conan Doyle and his wife were vacationing with uh, Harry and Beth Houdini in Atlantic City. And uh, they had done this before. They'd vacationed before in England. And they had struck up um, this friendship two years before or so when Houdini actually sent a copy of a book he had written to Conan Doyle. He really idolized Conan Doyle. And Conan Doyle responded, read it, responded, and that started a correspondence, and then the two of them did eventually meet, and they really hit it off, despite their opposing views on spirituality, which we'll talk about more. But anyway, at at this Atlantic City um, vacation, Lady Jean Conan Doyle, for some reason, um, decided that she was actually a trans medium and did an automatic writing Seance, which is um, the uh, spirit supposedly takes control of the medium's hand and starts writing out on pieces of paper. And so Lady Jean was supposedly taken over by this spirit, and she claimed it was Houdini's mother. So Houdini was um, very, very attached to his mother, and when she died, he was you know, morbidly obsessed with trying to reach out to her somehow and considered suicide. So when this mm-hmm. happened, um, he was really insulted that she had manipulated him during this supposed seance. Um, and that kind of started the downward spiral of their friendship, um, which never fully recovered. And then the two of them went public with their animosity towards each other in the press. Hmm. So that's, <laughs> never that, a good that thing. That whole section kind of really was the germ of what became the play. Hmm. Well, now, when she did this, um, I mean, she was faking it, right? 
Well, in her heart of hearts, she claimed no, and Conan Doyle being such an avid believer, he would never say that she was faking it. Right. Um, and she, after Houdini's mother, um, she started channeling this spirit called Phineas, who was a Sumerian um, scribe back in 2600 B.C., and he gave lots and lots of information, which they then published as books and articles, and she then developed this whole following. So when you read about this, it's very unusual, and nobody really seems to have called her on whether or not she was faking it other than Houdini. So it's, it's one of those mysterious things I wish I, wish I could uh, jump into a, you know, a, a time machine and, and go back and see uh-huh. what actually happened. Well, okay. Um, I mean, I guess, hmm, that's interesting. Um, well, you know, the motivation, her motivation is, is constantly being um, examined. In the play, I, um, without giving too much away, she was very concerned for Sir Arthur's reputation at that point. Um, he, his reputation had suffered enormously by his publishing the book, the coming of the fairies, which I think a lot of people know about this episode. There were, uh, had been a couple of films about it in which he claimed that these two girls uh, who had taken photographs of themselves with fairies um, were, was actual, were actual photographs. And um, uh, people really started to think he was a little bit bonkers. There were lots of articles out at the time, you know, has he gone insane? What's wrong with him? He's soft in the head. And um, his wife was very, in the play, his wife is very, very concerned about this uh, because he just keeps, every time he opens his mouth, he seems to, um, you know, make, make a fool of himself. And uh, so in the play, she's trying to protect him from further embarrassment. Uh-huh. And so, um, I mean, even if she were actually a medium, and maybe with the, the books that they you know, were published uh, when she channeled the Sumerian. Um, uh, was I had gotten the impression from watching the play that um, that maybe well, it isn't clear, and that's on purpose, I guess, because the answer isn't really clear. But I had the impression that she had um, somehow found out a lot of information about um, uh, Houdini's mother, and that's how she knew what to say. You know, she was trying. She was trying to. to because they were they were trying to say that these that psychics um, are accurate and they can reach people in the hereafter, and, and Houdini was trying to say the opposite. And so I had the impression that she was um, trying to seem like she was in contact with his mother as a way of proving that her husband was right, you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was right, and Houdini was wrong. Well, right? that's true. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's exactly right, and that's exactly how we do it in the play. Um, there are people who uh, would say, yes, that's actually what she did, because the pages, you know, the pages do exist um, that she wrote, and it was you know, pages and pages and pages that she did during this session that we just couldn't put on stage, because right. so, it's just way too much. But all of the material that she you know, supposedly channeled is very vague, it doesn't really pinpoint anything that mm. would make you believe that it's Houdini's mother. Mm, mm. Um, and other than, you know, her urging um, Houdini and Sir Arthur to work together towards this great goal of converting people to spiritualism, there really isn't much there 
that would, you know, if I were Houdini, I'd say, that's not my mother. What is she mm-hmm. talking about? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, he was immediately suspect. You know, mm-hmm. the, uh, right afterwards. Mm-hmm. So he he knew she was faking it. Uh huh. Her reasons for faking it, as I said, are still, you know, de- debated and discussed. Right. Um, uh, John Cox, who writes the amazing site Wild About Harry, he was also at opening night, and and he posted uh, has been posting various things about the play, and one of them is, was she crazy? Um, mm. Or is she was she the most insidious of all of these spiritualists mm. out there? Mm. That's interesting. Well, um, it's time to take a break. We're um, talking today about Houdini, Sherlock Holmes, and the Hereafter. My guests are the playwright Gene Franklin Smith, who wrote the play Flim Flam, Houdini and the Hereafter, that's currently playing at the uh, Malibu Playhouse, world premiere. And Rick Deer Wasserman, who we'll hear from in the next segment, who stars as Harry Houdini. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Dr. Carol Lieberman, and we're talking today about Houdini, Sherlock Holmes, and the Hereafter with my guests, uh, Gene Franklin Smith, the playwright, and Eric D. Wasserman, who stars as Harry Houdini in the play at the Malibu Playhouse. Um, I also wanted to mention, uh, Gene Franklin Smith is the artistic director of the Malibu Playhouse. He's won many awards for the various plays he has written and directed, and um, he uh, is uh, he also uh, adapted and directed Noel Coward's The Vortex, which played at the Malibu Playhouse, which Gene I saw, and that was that was also uh, uh, very, you know, really uh, noteworthy, very, an excellent play. And Thank you. now, Rick, let's go. Let's go to you, the star of uh, of um, Flim Flam. And um, uh, Rick is the signature voice for AMC Network. Uh, he's also voiced Thor and Hulk. 
for Marvel animation projects. He made his Broadway debut in The Lion King. That's a pretty good show to make a debut in. And also in the L.A. Pantages Theater. And I was, when I was reading your bio, I realized I must have seen you in that. Hey, we went to that. Uh, probably slightly different than what you see in the Houdini show. <laughs> well, I, what did you play? I played a bunch of characters in Lion King at all different times, but I played Timon, Pumbaa, Zazu, and Scar, or as oh, I like to say, all the white characters. <laughs> well, that's true. I guess I, sh- I should have known. Um, and you also played Sigmund Freud, which that's pretty interesting. Um, he's played on television. He's had recurring roles on 24, The District. Uh, he's guest-starring guest roles on House, Burn Notice, um, without a trace, and so on and so on. So um, let, let me ask you, I know that you, oh, well, first of all, I was interested to read that your first uh, performance, actually, when you were five or six, and this was in Kalamazoo, Michigan, was as a contestant in a talent show where you performed a three-minute magic <laughs> now, I thought that that was, <laughs> I mean, did you, of course, you never could have imagined at that time no. that you would be playing Harry Houdini. <laughs> I have. I kind of stepped up my game since then. I could do probably five or six minutes worth of magic now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, my, my first kind of foray into performing at all was magic. My father introduced it to me. He had a good friend of his who was a dentist who always kept a deck of cards in his pocket. And he was always there to, you know, take them out and show us tricks and... Uh, my father started showing me tricks, and um, we started seeing uh, magic shows. I, when I was very young, I got to see Harry Blackstone Jr. and Doug Henning. I'd seen Penn and Teller a bunch of times, and David Copperfield. And we even took a little pilgrimage out to Colon, Michigan, which everybody knows is the magic capital of the world. And uh, I got to go, you know, shopping in these big magic stores there. So it's always been kind of a part of my life. In fact, when I was in high school. One of my high school jobs was doing children's parties, uh, magic with a partner who juggled, which was, which was great fun. And then somehow I got into acting, but I think it probably all started being on the stage doing magic. Yes, yes, and seeing the reaction of the crowd and so on. For sure. Um, which actually brings me um, to ask you, you know, about Houdini and... Um, I was reading about how he was one of seven children, yes. which, of course, you know, would have made him want to um, somehow get a piece of attention for himself, fighting, you know, fighting for attention with six siblings. Absolutely. Um, and probably was, well, well you tell us, um, how, how did Houdini get into magic? You know, it's interesting. Uh, there was um, this story of a traveling circus coming into town, and the first thing he saw that was really taken by when he was still, oh, geez, still in the single digits of age, he, he saw uh, acrobats. And that was the first thing that really kind of keyed him into performing. He saw the reaction of the people. More than the performance, he saw the reaction of the people. And in preparing to play Houdini, I got to work with some magic coaches. And, of course, they would kind of, you know, show me skills and card manipulation and, and how escapes work. But the other part of my time with these coaches was asking them, why magicians get into magic. And one of them said something really great to me. He said, the first time I made someone ooh and ah, you know, mm. kind of their, their jaw goes slack, he goes, I could never not have that feeling again. Mm. And mm. I imagine that's what Houdini experienced as well. Once you can make someone feel that way, it gives you such a tremendous amount of power. And as you say, one of a number of children, um, he was 
the one that was constantly working at his body to become physically fit, to be the fastest, to be the strongest. In fact, there's a very, very telling picture in that uh, book that Gene was mentioning, The Secret Life of Houdini. It's, um, Houdini is a very, very young man when he was still Eric Weiss, and he had on um, a running shirt, you know, a sleeveless shirt with a, a number of medals on it, hmm. um, achievements from running. Well, it turns out that only one of those medals was, was real. The, the, the rest he had made. So you could see at such a young age, he, saw, uh, he felt how important it was to him um, to stand out, to, to be recognized. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he never, ever stopped chasing that. Well, you know, and it's so interesting because as an actor, um, I mean, you can, as an actor who played Houdini particularly, you, you know, can you differentiate for us? It's a different, I mean, actors want an audience reaction too, but it's a different kind of ooh and ah than a magician gets. Yeah, I suppose it is. I suppose it is different. But yes, uh, the goals are fairly similar. You know, you want to affect people. You know, you right. have a you have a story. Whether it is I'm going to make a rabbit appear out of a hat, or uh, I, I want you to, you know, I'm, I'm the prince of Denmark and understand what happened to my father. You know, you still have a story to tell, and the means by which you give over that story is acting or performing. So it's it's all still pretty much the same. Yes, I mean it's just that when. When people are ooing and eyeing for a magician, it's like, how did he do that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Whereas with a story, you know, like Shakespeare um, or any kind of story, um, it's more about, you know, more about the, getting them to feel, getting the audience to feel whatever it is that you're trying to get across as a character. Yeah, I would think, yeah, and in that way, I think they're fairly the same. I think the performer, the actor, the magician, they all want to get the audience to feel. Um, I, I think that's I think that's a goal to get mm-hmm. them to walk away having experienced something, um, and it's interesting too. Magicians have different um, means of performing for sure, and they and they certainly have different goals with audiences. Some magicians, like you say, want them to kind of ooh and ah and walk away with how do they do that. There are some magicians that you might have seen that kind of shame audience members like, oh, you didn't see that? What well, was it too fast for you? Mm. There are also those magicians that like to suspend people in the disbelief. That is, people walk out going, I have no idea how that happened. Mm-hmm. I don't want to know. It's so pleasant kind of walking on air right now. I don't know what just happened. Um, the one thing they say about Houdini is that when he performed, he got through to people. He made eye contact with everyone. Mm. His smile was genuine with everyone on stage. Um, and that's something I... I I hope to achieve. Uh huh. Well, I, I don't. I didn't see you smiling at me. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> Can I you? Um, let's talk about his mother. What was up with that? Why did he have uh, such a close relationship with his mother? Cecilia. Um, yeah. Both of you can chime in on this. What was what was up with that? I mean, of course, every little boy has you know the Oedipal (laughs) story to figure that one out. Um, But I mean, what was you know what he he was really obsessed with the fact that how old was he when she died? Oh God, how old was he, Rick? I'm not remembering that one. I think it's it's just a few years. Was he a child? we take the play. We start the play. Um, you know, I've got my book right here. I should just look it up. <laughs> uh, uh, you know when how he old was, he was when, he was when his a... mother died? Yeah, yeah, yeah how, he how old was, um, was he? Um, he was, let me tell you. Oh, he was uh, uh, over She died. Uh, he was probably 30. 
nine. Oh, so he was an adult already. Oh, okay. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He so, and Bess were performing in, in Europe. As he says in the play, he was in Copenhagen when he got the telegraph from oh, his brother right. Dash that she had died, and he literally fainted on the spot um, so when he got that So what was that? Telegram. You know, it's, it's kind of a little easier to understand if, if someone is, you know, less than 20, let's say, um, when uh, when a parent dies. But what, I mean, obviously there was such a huge... Um, something huge between the two of them for him to, to for then that to then direct really the rest of his life. What what was it? Well, who, who, I mean, really, who knows? Other than you know, when he was very young, um, he had to uh, go out in the streets, and you know, he would panhandle or he would sell things and make things and sell them and make, bring money. And his father was a rabbi, wasn't a very successful. Rabbi, um, he had died relatively young, and and basically charged Houdini with the care of his mother, um, and so he always took that promise that he wanted, you know, to fulfill um, very very seriously. And when he first first made his first large amount of money, I think it was a hundred dollars or something, he had it in gold coins, and he dropped it into her lap. He like showered it into her lap. Um, so he. I mean, you're the psychiatrist on this one, Carol. Well, okay, um, yes, I had forgotten, actually, that, yes, he, he, the fact that his father, his father um, died and actually made, I guess, made Houdini, in a way, uh, the man of the house, or Houdini felt responsible for taking care of his mother, and then they were together. You know, he had gotten, <laughs> like Oedipus, he had gotten rid of the rival father, and, and he yeah. was with his mother. That would kind of explain it. Yes. It, well, you know, it, one it, of the things that the theories that is out there is that Houdini did um, kill his father. So he was a um, he he idolized the very famous French uh, magician Robert Houdin, and in fact, that's where he took his name, Houdin, um, being the French version, and then he turned it into to Houdini. Um, but he wrote a book that he just, I guess, debunked uh, Robert Houdin's. Uh, authenticity as a as a great illusionist and magician. In fact, I believe that's the book he sent to Conan Doyle, and then he got this, you know, into this father kind of father son relationship with Conan Doyle, um, and then went out to you know destroy his credibility as well. So to me, that's like right with Freudian, ima- yes. you know, <laughs> Freudian well, also, you know, imagery. Also, yes, uh, yes. his father Meyer, Rabbi Meyerweiss, he was an educated man. He was. Uh, he was said to be uncompromising and completely devoted to Cecilia. They, they mm. were wonderfully in love. And that is what was modeled for Houdini. That's what he mm. saw in front of him, his father doting on his mother. And yes, when his father was on his deathbed, he held his son's hand, Houdini's hand, and he said, you know, never let her want for anything, ever. Make that promise to me now. And he did, and his father died. So yeah, that's a heavy thing to lay on a kid. Yeah. And how did and, uh, his mother die? What was that? How did his mother die? Oh, I think she just, I mean, I think it was just a natural occurrence, a stroke maybe. It might have been a stroke. Um, it was quite sudden. She was feeling rather poorly when, they, when she had gone off to see off uh, Harry and Bess. They uh, had gone to um, the, where the ship was, was leaving, down at the port, the dock. Oh, here comes the music. And um, she uh, seemed to be take, taking sick rather soon after that. Uh-huh. 
But we don't. Um, yes, it was actually that you do talk about that in the play, and it was kind yes. of mysterious as to what actually happened with her. Well, we need to take another break. Unfortunately, we're talking today about Houdini, Sherlock Holmes, and the hereafter. And um, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and we'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, here today with Gene Franklin Smith, the playwright of Flim Flam, Houdini, and the Hereafter, which is currently making its world premiere at the Malibu Playhouse, and Rick D. Wasserman, who stars as Harry Houdini. So before the break, we were talking about um, Houdini and his parents and so on, and I wanted to ask you, I wanted to get a little bit into spiritualism, and it was dawning on me that with his father being a rabbi, um, what impact that had on his views of the hereafter and his views of spiritualism Hmm. Uh, Dean, do you want to... Well, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, it, it, it's weird. Even though his father was a rabbi, they, they, at least from what I read, they don't seem to have been a terribly religious family. Uh, Rick, did you, is there anything that maybe you had seen that would be otherwise with that? I mean, I, mean, I, I think he believed in God, and I think he believed yeah. in the, the stories and the teachings that his father um, held uh, and his beliefs, I think he, he shared them with his father. I also think that very early on, as a magician, because he was a magician first, like I said, first he, he was, uh, did some acrobatics, then he became a mid- magician learning card tricks and coin tricks. Well, those didn't do terribly well on these little dime museums. I mean, he, he was okay, but he wasn't making a lot of money. And he saw that these mentalists made quite a bit more. So he started doing a mentalism act, even before he did any of these famous stunts or uh, escapes or anything. So, and what do you mean by a mentalism act? Um, mind reading, talking to uh, spirits and that kind of thing. So he, he'd done it. And, and he had this incredible education on the Midway in, the, uh, in these kind of dime museums in vaudeville in every bit of sleight of hand there is, every bit of manipulation and deception. He was trained in it. So... Throughout his life, the more he was exposed to psychic mediums, 
I mean, without even trying, he couldn't help but see all the tricks. He mm. just saw them. Um, and, and, and you would have to imagine, too, it was pretty crushing, especially after his mother passed. He wanted nothing more than to make contact with her. Yeah, that was a goal. That was an obsession, uh, like she always was with him. He wanted to be with her again. So when he went to go see a psychic medium, he was hoping that it was true. He was hoping it was the one. He, didn't, he wasn't going in there to break it up. He wanted to find his mother. And every time he went in and saw obvious tricks that he'd done a thousand times, mm. it was gutting. It was crushing. It really cost him. Um, hmm. So he's not really a ghostbuster, you know. He wasn't going yeah. in and saying, "I'm showing you how to do it." He really wanted this because he knew so much of all the trickery that goes into creating illusions. He and his wife Beth, when they were first starting out, they were working for a couple of traveling uh, circuses, and they would do a phony spiritualism act as part of, you know, like one of the sideshows. And what they would do is they, before they got, when they got to the town, they would go to the cemetery and huh. see who had recently died. They'd write the names down, then they'd talk to the sexton and see if there was any family gossip or, you know, that people would know some intimate details. And then they would go and do their show the next day, counting on the fact that during one of the shows, because they would do several a day, one of these people who would want to speak huh. with their recently dead person would go in and they would fake uh, contacting the person who had, you know, oh, wow. just passed away. So when it came down to, he was, uh, you know, dis- disgusted by the spiritualist because he knew exactly, you know, all the, the mm. tricks that go into it, and he found it to be criminal. And at the time, um, after World War One, and we, uh, you know, touch upon very briefly in the play, there's so many widows and um, and parents who'd lost their sons in the war, and they were all reaching out. Spiritualism had really started to happen in 1848, and it would go up and down in popularity, Um, but by the turn of the century and after the war, it really picked up enormously. So anybody who said, oh, yes, I'm contacting your mother, you know, they would be paid, you know, someone's weekly salary and uh, fake contacting the person. So when yeah, he saw and- that, he re- it really became a crusade for him to debunk everyone. At the same time, as Rick was saying, trying to find that one who could really connect him hmm, hmm. with his mother. And, and yes, and in line with the World War I, um, that was uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, motivation for, for wanting these things to be true. Tell us about that. Yes, his son had died just two days before the armistice, and, um, and he hadn't died in battle. Um, he, di- he died, I, I believe it was of diphtheria on, you know, on the battleground somewhere. And it was, uh, this was Conan Doyle's oldest son with his first wife, Louisa. And obviously they were incredibly distressed by this. And so um, friends said, you know, you should try seeking some comfort from a... Uh, a psychic medium. So Conan Doyle at this point was not a believer. Um, in fact, because he had written all the Sherlock Holmes stories, he kept calling himself a sober-minded investigator. Hmm. And he went, he and Louisa went to the seance, and he claims that his son Kingsley was contacted and touched him on the forehead. And so he became an instant believer from that moment and would then uh, contact his son at, you know, other other uh, spiritualist gatherings. So that just, it, it, it changed his life, that one seance. 
And again, he was reaching out. And then when his mother died, he was again reaching out to his mother. This is also the fascinating thing with drew these two men together, is that they were both trying to contact their mother mm. um, from the other side. And Conan Doyle was convinced that his mother came through uh, all the time. Every psychic he you know, went to, um, he claimed that his mother had come through. Hmm. So Houdini was, of course, encouraged, but also at the same time doubtful of this because Conan Doyle seemed to believe that every spiritualist had something, even though they may be faking it sometimes because they're tired, as he said. He did believe that they were making contact. And that's why the two of them set off. I mean, that's so Sir Arthur Conan Doyle convinced um, Houdini to to join his committee, right? The Scientific, yes, the Scientific American, American Committee. committee right. Mm-hmm. And because he thought that Houdini, if, if Houdini, if they could convince Houdini that they were uh, true, that this was real, that they were able to make contact with the dead, the hereafter, and so on, that then everybody would believe it, that Houdini was the biggest, considered the biggest skeptic, even though he was really hoping that he would be able to find his mother. Right. Um, that then that would, and that would help um, Conan Doyle's reputation. That's right. Yeah, it served both of them uh, fairly well. In fact, yes, Houdini did want to you know, make contact with his mother, so finding that one psychic that could put him in touch with her was a big driving force. But the other thing that drove him, well, there was a couple of things, but the, one of the big ones was he, um, you know, he was uh, getting up there in years, and every one of these stunts, every one of these escapes that he did, had an effect on his body. He was really, he had broken many bones. He had strained and sprained and um, ruptured a number of things. Um, he did a rope escape once that, that hurt his kidney permanently, and he you know, lived with it for 15 years. So he was pretty beaten up. He looked forward in, uh, to getting into uh, movies because he figured if he could do all those escapes and stunts one more time in the movies, he wouldn't have to do them on stage every night. Uh, uh. So he was looking for a means to get out. You know, he tried the movies and failed, and Houdini's not used to failing. He was just not very charismatic. He was pretty wooden on the, on the big screen. So when this spiritualism and debunking kind of came around, it was an opportunity to reinvent himself, which he was so mm. good at doing. Mm. So this was the next chapter of his career that he saw this uh, opportunity with uh, huh. Conan Doyle. And also... Um, Houdini didn't graduate college, you know, he, uh, he, he was working as a kid, so he, uh, and his father was very educated, so he always wanted to put himself among the educated people. He always wanted to walk among them, be respected. The Houdini Library is one of the largest libraries in the world, and um, he would align himself with the literati, so that's what he did with Conan Doyle. Not to say they didn't really have a friendship, but they needed each other, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's really, uh, what, let's talk about his death, because now, you, you mentioned, uh, earlier, Rick, the, about the movie, and, and, uh, come to, I think I saw that movie, the movie of Houdini, and, the, uh, with the Tony Curtis movie, yeah, with yeah. Tony Curtis, and I, was it, is that movie, or somewhere or other, I had this, um, memory, or, I thought that Houdini died, um, from a the water trip doctor, so. that right. went wrong. Didn't he? Where am I getting this from? <laughs> you're, you're getting that from the movie, and that movie yeah. kind of 
glamorize something that's not true. <laughs> he didn't, yes, he didn't, didn't die he in any Chinese He went down under the ocean and he couldn't get out of no, the... No, yeah, that, that didn't happen. Yeah. But they sure did it in the movie and it was fun to watch, but that's not historically accurate. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was, it's a very kind of uh, prosaic way to go. I mean, he was on tour in Montreal and um, these college students came backstage to introduce themselves and one of them said... You know, you're Houdini, you claim that you can take, you know, any blow to your body. And, and so be- Houdini said yes, and before he had a chance to do his tightening up of his body muscles and so forth, the student hit him. Well, that wasn't what killed him, but what had happened is that his, it certainly had weakened his appendix. And during the performance, his appendix burst. But he still went on. He had, like, you know, another evening show or something to do. And um, he did it, but then he collapsed backstage. And, yeah, he was a maniac. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he had appendicitis, and this kid yep. ruptured his appendix, uh, appendix with this blow. He went on to do the show. Then he got on a train. He went to Detroit yep. to go do another show. I mean, <laughs> it's insane. So um, by the time, you know, it, 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 he, he had collapsed, his, he had peritonitis. So they rush him to the hospital, and as, you know, Beth says, uh, you know, in the play, um, when they opened him up, and I don't want to, you know, gross anybody out, but let's just say that his body was severely infected from within. And I've read that perhaps he could have been saved with medicine today, but um, it just wasn't going to be the case. And he, he died actually on Halloween. October yes, 31st. yes, that, which is, you know, I mean, that, he went out with the same uh, showmanship <laughs> yeah. that he had throughout his life. Thing. I think maybe that was it. He was just trying to live long enough to have him die on, mm. on Halloween. The, the very sad thing is that when he was in the hospital and he was delirious, he accused his wife, Bess, of poisoning him. She actually, weirdly, was in the hospital for some food poisoning at the same time. Once um, she got over that, he refused to let her in because um, he was delirious. And, you know, their, their marriage was difficult as it was. Um, and so it was very, very hard, and she was finally let in, you know, at the very end to, to say her goodbyes. Hmm. But it was uh, it, it it was a it, it it that that marriage is you know we do talk about it in the play as well and it's directly linked to his relationship with his mother and uh, people also you know debate endlessly what that marriage was about including why they didn't have children which is an enormous <laughs> bone of contention amongst uh, the Houdini scholars. <laughs> well, in the play, um, I mean, she seems to have. Oh, <laughs> getting the Here signal. Music time. <laughs> getting the signal that we need to take another break, but um, but she seems to have. I got the impression that it was because she had devoted her life to him, and um, and knew that he needed her whole attention, and that that she really kind of regretted not having kids. But we can you can talk about that when we come back. Um, my guests today are Jean Franklin Smith and Rick D. Wasserman, um, and their play is Flim Flam, Houdini, and the Hereafter. We will come back after this break. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking about Houdini, Sherlock Holmes, and the hereafter uh, with my guest, playwright Gene Franklin Smith, and uh, Rick D. Wasserman, the star of Harry Houdini, uh, Jean's play being Flim Flam, Houdini, and the Hereafter, playing at the Malibu Playhouse. And we will be telling you during this segment how you can get tickets, and I cannot uh, suggest to you sufficiently how, you know, this is a real night of... I, believe me, we're not, we're not giving it away. <laughs> there's still, still a lot, and there's still tricks to see, Houdini's tricks. But, I mean, this is such a... We could be talking about this for, uh, for hours and hours, and um, let's. Um, one of the things that came up that comes up, and I, I don't want to give things away um, from the play, but one thing that um, you know, Sir Arthur kind of. Well, the idea is when people go into the hereafter, and these psychics claim to be in touch with them, um, and they. One of the ways that the psychics. Uh, how, how do I explain this? One of the ways that the that I guess was a way to test whether this was true was to um, have certain code words that um, the psychic would have to know in order to prove that they were in touch um, with the person who's still alive, which I think people still do today. I mean, <laughs> have, you, have you two decided, have you made that... Um, uh, that plan with your loved ones that uh, whoever is going to die, do you have code words with your loved ones to, to be able to test whether, in fact, um, they are watching over you and can be contacted? Uh, we haven't gotten no. that far in our relationship yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't mean necessarily the two of you together. I mean, whoever, whoever you're going to be making these, um, these plans with, but have you thought about that? I, I certainly haven't. Um, I, I've had a lot of um, experiences with the uh, psychic mediums, which you know was another inspiration for me to. Uh, Do you write believe the play. in them? Pardon me. Do you believe in them? Um, I, from all the psychics that I went to, there was one that I believed she had something because um, I talk about it actually in the program of the um, for the play. Uh, seemingly con- uh, got in touch with my, my grandmother. And it was very accurate. It was very specific. She described her physically as well. Um, none of the others that I'd went to 
um, ever did anything like that. They're all basically the same. Oh, you know, you shall succeed and, you know, make money and all that sort of stuff. That's what they all say, <laughs> right? And, but this one actually was talking about that my grandmother was watching over me and described her in detail. So that gave me some hope that there is, you know, uh, someone out there who can do this. Now, uh-huh. whether or not I pass on, you know, a code word to somebody, it's going to have to be one of those really, you know, talented psychics, I think, to pick up whatever that code word is. Um, you know, in Houdini's case, with his mother, it was the word forgive, which coincidentally, as you know, we said earlier, was the word that uh, Conan Doyle's son um, had come through with. And he had a code word for, uh, that he and Beth also used, which I'm not going to reveal because it does have something to do with the play. Yes, you um, know, when, when Houdini um, and, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's son both, um, when they... When wait wait who was it with Houdini with the code word? Um, his mother. His mother. His mother was forgive. Oh, oh, that's right. His mother had. So they had. Um, they had arranged that, or he just knew. Yeah. Oh, he he just knew that that was um, something that his no, mother. No, arranged. Yeah, they had arranged it. Okay. They, they had told each other that that's what it would be. That should whoever crossed over first would try to communicate the word forgive to the person who was alive. Yes, and I thought that that was really fascinating that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's son also said forgive. I mean, it kind of made the point that maybe there was some connection, you know, between Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Houdini. I mean, that they were, I don't know what, meant to work together, meant to be friends, even though in the end uh, the spiritualism tore them apart. Dr. Carroll, I might also say that it, it might also point toward that word being a common word between people. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That it's maybe not so much a coincidence, that that might be something. And this is what psychic mediums would do a lot. They would find the words, the phrases, the thoughts. You, you know, your grandmother had gentle hands and her skin was like tissue paper. Oh, that's my grandma. Well, you know, maybe because that's fairly common. And... Um, well, okay, but did you, but Jean, did you mean that to show um, by revealing that that Sir that Houdini's mother and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's son um, both used the word forgive? Did you mean what? Okay, what were you trying to show with that? Um, I, I I don't think I was implying that there is you know some sort of connection in the afterlife that that this brought them together. However, it is certainly, because I'm really on the side, not, not a skeptic, but I'm certainly like, you know, before Conan Doyle got, you know, perverted by it all, I do, I do see myself as sober-minded about it all. Uh-huh. Um, but there, it is very unusual coincidence that Houdini's mother and Sir Arthur's son were using that same word. Um, Rick, do you, do you also think that it was just a coincidence, or do you believe, did you believe that um, when you were playing it, did you believe that there was some significance? Um, me, Rick, or me, Houdini? I think... I think uh, well, either one. Yeah. I mean, or if it's different, then... I, I, think, it's, I think it's coincidental. You know, I, I, know, I know stories of... Um, mediums or, you know, even people who, who have mentalism acts. That is, they're meant for entertainment purposes only. They're not, they, they will tell the audience, listen, I don't have any special magical powers. This is simply for entertainment purposes. They will go to towns and they will ask, hey, name um, five of your best friends from elementary school. And they will. And in 
town to town, you'll see a lot of similarities. So that they, when they come to co- you know, when they go to a show and they'll say, "You, you, sir, stand up." Um, your best friend when you were in <laughs> elementary school, his name was what? It's Tommy. It's Tom- no, it's not Tommy. It's John. It's Johnny, isn't it? And the guy goes, oh, "How could you possibly know?" Because- oh, you guys are so cynical. Well, I'm looking at it um, from a different perspective. As a psychiatrist, I look at everything as not coincidences. You know that there was some that whatever psychologically was going on in Houdini's mother and in Conan Doyle's son, I don't know, that, that there was some, some significance that then, they, that then they wound up being friends or that they wound up going on this search together to see whether it was true or not. Well, I'll tell you, I, I, I mean, I love that idea. And, <laughs> and to me, it's, it's, it's very romantic, and I really, I really, I really do love it. Um, I, I, don't, I don't believe in it. And what the effect that it's had on me is that I tell you, after working on this show and considering the things that have to be considered to play this part, I do kiss my wife more often. I do hug my children a bit more often. It, does, you know, it has had an effect on me. Uh-huh. Huh. Because of what? Of the thinking about the hereafter so yes. much? I mean, a lot of this show deals with mortality or immortality. Yes. And really, the show, for me, has always been about the, that notion of death mortality and or immortality and how it affects three couples in the yes. play because the couple is made up the play is made up of three couples yes. and you see that some people struggle with the notions of mortality and immortality some embrace it and some profit from it mm-hmm. and, and i think that's fascinating i think that's an mm-hmm. interesting story well, in, in I, a in a life like houdini's which is so rich it's so fertile for story gene has really kind of zeroed in on something that's that's really fascinating, and, yes. and, uh, and it's a big idea. Uh, yes, yes. Um, okay, tell, I, don't want, I want to make sure there's enough time to give people the information for how they can get tickets, when it's playing, and so on. It's playing right now uh, until August 3rd. We have performances on Friday and Saturday evenings at 8 p.m., matinees at 3 p.m. You can purchase tickets through our website, which is malibuplayhouse.org, or you can also do it through plays411.com. Okay. And, um, again, that's malibuplayhouse.org, where you can also uh, find more about the uh, bios of my two guests and uh, of the other cast members and, um, and, some, and, <laughs> and Rick's blog, which is kind of interesting, talking about uh, the life of an actor, or at least his life as, as an actor. Right. And um, so, again, that's Fridays and Saturdays at 8 p.m., Sundays at 3, and it's until August 3rd. Uh, no show on July 4th, and, uh, you know, make a day of it. It's, be- it's beautiful. It's Malibu. Yes, yes, <laughs> you know, yes. We are the theater in Malibu. It's right off the PCH, and it's a spectacular place. Yes, it's very easy to find. It's just off PCH, and, uh, and yes, you can... <laughs> You can make a, make a whole day or night of it. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you both very much, Gene Franklin Smith, Rick D. Wasserman. Um, you've created an incredible, incredible evening, and I hope this goes on to, uh, to be played. Should, I hope it reaches Broadway. Yeah, so <laughs> and do I. I hope Rick, you're still in it when, you go to, when it goes to Broadway. Maybe you have some connections up there in the afterlife that can make that connection. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start going to psychics and see <laughs> what they say about it. Dr. Well, thank, thank you very you much. Today. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. 
Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.